So how many of y'all have seen the Dude Ranch Cowboy film from 1991 called City Slickers? Oh, a bunch of you. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, Jack Palance plays Curly, a tough-as-rawhide cowboy, and Billy Crystal plays Mitch. Great name. Uh, A city slicker trying to make sense of a midlife crisis. And he decides that being... A city, uh, being a, a pretend cowboy for a couple of weeks might, might cure his ills. In my favorite scene in the movie, Curly and Mitch are riding along the trail and talking for the first time about serious issues of life. And at one point, Curly, the cowboy, turns to Mitch, the city boy, and says, Do you know what the secret of life is? And Mitch replies, no, what? And Curly holds up his index finger and says, one thing. And Mitch goes, your finger? (laughs) One thing, just one thing. You stick to that and the rest don't mean... I can't say it in church. But, but what is the one thing? That's what you have to find out. You have to find the one thing. So our gospel reading this morning is about another man trying to find his one thing. And Jesus, not played by Jack Palance also says something about finding that one thing. And so imagine yourself in that scene. Maybe you're part of the crowd. Maybe you're one of the disciples. You're moving along with Jesus. And suddenly this man comes running, running up and kneels at Jesus' feet and still panting says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus curiously has a really mundane answer here. He gives a list of half of the Ten Commandments. And the man says, I've done all of those ever since I was a child. And Mark writes that Jesus looked at him and loved him. It doesn't say that Jesus said he loved him. It just said that Jesus looked at him and loved him. It must have been Palpable. You know that kind of look. And Jesus said, you lack one thing. And we bet this man thought, one thing. All right, I've got this. One thing. That's like an A minus. I'm almost there. <clears throat> and Jesus drops the bomb. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And I bet his heart sank. That wasn't the one thing he was counting on. And I'm not even sure if he heard the second half where Jesus says, and then come and follow me. The gospel says that he walked away in shock and grieving because he had many possessions. And I wonder about that shock, and I wonder about the grief. Why, why such a reaction? 
And maybe it's because he didn't want to give up his stuff. Stuff is okay. Stuff is great, right? But I wonder if it's also that he didn't want to give up what the stuff signified. In that day, if you were wealthy, it was a sign of God's approval. It was pretty simple. If you were doing well, God loved you. If you weren't doing well, God probably still loved you, but you clearly had done something wrong. Y'all remember the math from last week's right. Job discussion. Right. This is the same culture, right? And so maybe it was the stuff, or maybe it was what the stuff meant. And giving that up, that assurance that was so hard for him. Okay, I'm going to interrupt this with a quick Greek lesson. Apologies. Uh, To talk about the term that the rich man asked about. He said, what must I do to inherit? And in Mark's awkward Greek, it's Ionia Zoe, eternal Life is how it's often translated. And what does that exactly mean? In Jesus' day, the rabbis were teaching that there would be a general resurrection at the end of the age. Well, a resurrection of the righteous at the end of the age. So eternal life was a hope that there would be some kind of return to life after death for those who deserved it. Now, it's important to note that in each of the three, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus uses the phrase himself, eternal life, precisely once in each Gospel. And it's in this reading because he's responding specifically to this man's question about that term. So it was not number one on Jesus' priority list. And even here, Jesus rapidly segues to the topic of the kingdom or realm of God. But we can get a hint of what's meant here if we look at John's gospel, which was written almost a half a century later. But Jesus uses the term eternal life quite a bit. And in it, it conveys a sense of quality of living, not something that happens after you die. Ionia, Zoe, is a life of the ages, a way of life that looks like the way Jesus lived. It is not about getting a ticket to heaven when you die. It is about a life without temporal boundary or disconnection or interruption. It's a different way of living that is in deep relationship with creation, with humanity, And with God. That begins now. Not just when you die. What must I do, the man asks, to inherit eternal life? So when Jesus looked at this man and loved him, and I think that detail is so important, and says, you lack one thing, We think what he's saying to him really is, if you want to share in the life of the ages, 
If you want your life to be rich and full, if you want to live and love completely, if you want to experience the realm of God right here and now, then loose yourself from your possessions and distribute them to the poor and come and follow me. And then you will be free, really free. Then you'll find what you're longing for. It's important to remember that Jesus is not adding anything to be done by this man who has been doing his religion very well, thank you very much, since his youth. Jesus is not making here a demand, but an invitation. An invitation to cast aside all dependencies on merit and reputation and in radical trust stand bare before the God of love who freely, freely gives. Can you hear the invitation? Experience belovedness. Don't be about earning merit. Experience grace, not striving. Be still and know that God is God and God is love and you are beloved. For us readers in 2021, the story is asking us the same question of the man. What is the one thing that we need to give away to really answer Jesus, to really surrender to the unbounded love of God. And just like in the movie City Slickers, where that one thing was different for each one of the people, I think it's different for each one of us. And maybe even different in different life stages for each of us. But when we bump up against it, we usually know it. About 20 years ago, I came upon a quote from St. Ignatius that said, There are very few people who realize what God would make of them if they abandoned themselves into God's hands and let themselves be formed by God's grace. That sentence really struck me. And so I printed it out and I put it on the most valuable piece of real estate in our house, which is the window above the kitchen sink where I do dishes every day. It's the refrigerator for me, but that's a different (laughs) bit of real estate. So that I could see it and, and think about it. And so I would read it while I was doing the dishes. There are very few people who realize what God would make of them if they abandoned themselves into God's hands. And every time I read it, I tripped on the word abandon. I'm not about abandoning, right? I'm about competence. I'm about figure it out and make it right. I'm about take care of it. I grew up in a family where the highest praise was not for the people who are helpful, but for the people, by people I mean children, <laughs> who, were hel- who figured out what needed to be done without being asked and then did it without being told and were satisfied in that without possibly being praised, right? As a friend of mine said, <clears throat> uh, growing up in a similar family, 
if you had to ask how to help, you were kind of already in trouble, right? That, that, and there, there's good things about it, and there's, there's problems about it, but it tends to breed a resistance to being vulnerable, to being open, to not knowing, right? And so when I hear the word abandon, my immediate response is, yeah, no, right? That's not a place that I go easily. <clears throat> However, times in my life have brought me to where I, am, I need to be abandoned before God, that I, I abandon myself to God. And I know those have been times of grace and transformation and renewal. I just don't go there willingly very often. But as hard-baked into me as that resistance is, there's also a longing. So even as I'm saying, yeah, no, there's part of me that says, oh, that would be wonderful. And to me, that is a sign that it's, for me, one of the one things, right? That when... I'm challenged to do it. Part of me says, yeah, no. And then another part of me says, oh, what if? That is a rich place to be. And I wonder if that's how the young man felt. Right. Shock and an immediate, yeah, no. Right. And also a grieving. Mark said, That's what he had, a grieving. Because I wonder if some part of him deep down inside yearned to know what that abandonment into love, that surrender into belovedness felt like. He yearned to do what Jesus asked. He knew how transformative it would be for him. He knew it could lead to a radically, beautifully transformed life. Right here, right now. But, yeah, no, was where he went. And he turned around and left. So we are inviting you, as we invite ourselves as well, to wrestle a little with this, to ponder this, to do whatever it is that puts you in a place where you can be open to God, can be maybe in conversation, can be listening, whether it's going for a walk or sitting somewhere quiet or doing the dishes or weeding the garden, and reflect a little on what is the one thing that keeps you from eternal life, right here and right now, What is it that you're both terrified to let go and also yearning to let go at the same time? And if you have a really quick answer, like, oh, I'd love to give up being so busy, which is everyone's answer in 2021, think a bit about what's underneath. I wish I weren't so busy. What keeps you so busy? What's the fear or the drive or whatever that keeps you stuck there? Listen to what the fear is. Listen to what 
the yearning is. Look at the old patterns you might have been taught as a child and see if they're still worth keeping. And if you can, find someone to talk to about it because our ability to to deceive ourselves is so deep and so broad and our yearning to be God's people sometimes is so strong and so engaging that we sometimes put ourselves in places that are not wise or are not the right place for us really and so test out your thoughts test out your feelings with another person with someone you love with a spiritual director with a pastor, we're available for this kind of conversation if you're at all interested in that. Our emails are right on the back of the bulletin. <laughs> yes, so indeed they we are. are. available. So that you can start to release your hold on the one thing. And it will be hard. Jesus spoke to that hard. It will be uncomfortable. And if you're wondering, well, how uncomfortable? Well, Try asking a camel that's just been squeezed through the eye of a needle. You tend to end up with about two miles of very long, thin camel. It's pretty uncomfortable. But, Jesus says, what's impossible for humans and camels is possible for God. And God working through us. <clears throat> so um, on Friday night, as we were flying back from Kansas, and we were pretty proud of, uh, we seemed to have gotten the sermon all wrapped up and ready. Uh, and our life is always better if it's wrapped up on Friday night. Much. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we made the mistake of, of watching uh, the Zoom climate talk with our old friend Bill McKibben yesterday at the District Resource Day. Uh, For folks who don't know, uh, Bill McKibben uh, wrote the first popular-level book about climate change back in 1988, 9? Yeah. Long time ago. And has been ignored for 40 years. and that, that there was a recording made of his talk yesterday, which was wonderful. And we'll make that link available to you if you would like to, to hear it. So it is not something you're going to want to watch if you want to be comfortable. Though Bill, being Bill, he's an amazing human being, um, is challenging and hopeful both. And as we heard him speak, we were struck by... And because we were, we've been wrestling with the scripture, the stuckness of our society, of our dependence on fossil fuels, even though we know better, reminded us of the stuckness of this man who came to Jesus to say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's really not any scientific debate anymore. Not really, that the planet's warming up because of our use of fossil fuels. And that those who pay the greatest price for what's happening to the planet are the very people who have done the least to contribute to that fossil fuel use. It tends to be the poor. It tends to be people of color. It tends to be folks in developing nations. We know all this. 
For 40 years, we have known this, uh, but we have squandered the last four decades because we're stuck. We know we have to make changes, but now we're at such a point that we're told by climate scientists that that carbon emissions must be cut by 50% by the year 2030, where temperature change and global catastrophe will spiral out of control because of warming feedback loops that we will no longer be in control of. We are way past the possibility of us as individuals fixing the problem one LED light bulb at a time in our kitchen or one Toyota Prius at a time in our garage. As important as reducing our personal carbon footprint is, it's not enough, not anymore. Bill said there's really two things that need to happen right now. And one is the political will to do the hard changes societally and economically that will reduce our use of fossil fuels, that will bring down the carbon footprint of us as a society as opposed to individuals. And the other change, she said, is divesting our investments from fossil fuels. So he said it's about Washington and it's about Wall Street. It's about what needs to be done from a political point of view, and it's what needs to be done um, <clears throat> from a, what do you call it, a divestment point of view. I don't know what, what the word for that is. Um, and, uh, and it's hard, and it's taken time, but we're running out of time. Some of you may be aware that uh, Harvard just announced that they're, they're divesting all of their investments from fossil fuels. It took 10 years for Harvard to agree to do that, and we happen to know that because we were at their first Harvard Heat Week 10 years ago with our daughter um, asking for this change. It sounds hard, and it will be hard. It's kind of like being squeezed through the eye of a needle, and I, I know for myself, and I think I'm not alone in this, that given our druthers, we'd rather turn away. We had a long debate yesterday afternoon about whether to turn the sermon toward the end into this topic. And as I look at all of your faces this morning, that's exactly why we debated about it. <laughs> because this is, this is not easy news. This is not an easy truth or an easy challenge. But there's so much at stake. And we who are people of Jesus can't turn away. We who are people of the God who created the heavens and the earth and then charged humanity with the care, the stewardship of that heaven and earth, can't turn away. Systemic change is scary. And messy. And messy. Invisible and noisy activism is scary and messy. It moves us all out of our comfort zone, just like Jesus asked the rich young man to move out of his comfort zone. But Bill McKibben yesterday said, you know, our planet right now is 1.5 degrees Celsius out of its comfort zone. Maybe it's time to get out of ours.
Students and faculty, as Barb said, have been protesting for a decade now, and finally Harvard and Boston University and other schools have pledged to divest their portfolios. Justice protests 35 years ago got them to divest from South Africa. It makes a difference. It takes time. And unfortunately, that's the thing we don't have anymore. It takes time and it takes will. It takes presence. It takes being in the fight. And we're not going to give you a list of things to do this morning. We're not going to tell you what to, who to write or what to go, what, what event to go to. Imagine. <coughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we will, though, be using some of the communication char- channels of Harvard Epworth here on Sunday morning, newsletters, etc., to try to keep you aware of things. And those of you who know a lot more about this than we do, We encourage you to be in touch with us so that we can pass on your knowledge. When Jesus told the man to sell his possessions, he doesn't just tell him to walk away from his money. That would be a personal choice, a personal thing for him to do. Jesus tells him, to sell it and redistribute his wealth to the poor. Jesus' invitation to the man wasn't just personal. It had profound social implications as well. That's why it's uncomfortable. And that's true for us as well. There's a personal aspect of this. What is the one thing that keeps me from eternal life? And there's also a communal and corporate aspect of this. How can we join ourselves together to solve the one thing, the the things that most uh, keep our society and our world from taking on the biggest challenges of our time? Climate change is huge. It's the biggest challenge, perhaps, of our age. And like a lot, well, like the disciples, uh, we may be tempted to say, who then can be saved? And Jesus answers them and answers us. For humans alone, this is impossible. But not for God. For God, all things are possible. And I would add, with God and with each other all things are possible Amen Amen. Our next hymn is number 399 Take My Life and Let It Be